0: Our fight to eradicate corruption, maladministration, unethical leaders and the abuse of taxpayers' money by those in power continues. It's fresh, it's fearless and focused. The outer hour where your voice matters. Hello from me, Tom London, to you, wherever you find yourself in or outside of South Africa. Thank you for joining us on the Outer Hour. I'm your host for the next hour. Hope you stick around for the full 60 minutes. There's lots of stuff to discuss tonight. This evening, Andrea Korff, Senior Legal Project Manager at Outer, and Caroline Marks, the Responsible Member for Environmental Affairs at the Milnerton Ratepayers Association, will join us. We've been updating you on the Milnerton Lagoon pollution issue for some time, and we'll see what the latest news is this evening. If you have friends or family in Cape Town, and specifically in the Milnerton area, that side of Cape Town, get them to press the play button on this broadcast quickly because this matter affects them best of all, share the show. If you see the share button in front of you, hit that share button and hit the like button and help us get the show out to more and more people. And then we move on to energy. We move on to electricity and uh, Chris Yelland, Outer's Energy Consultant will join us and chat about the car powerships submission to Nursa. Now we've been chatting about car powerships. If you're unfamiliar with what a car powership is, I'm sure Chris will give us a brief introduction as we go into that segment of the show. But also talk about the non-negotiable deadline for fin- uh, financial close uh, and the three-car power ship projects that was the 31st of july 2021 what has happened to this deadline and what is the latest news on the car power ship deal Chris Yelland will bring us the details and then it's off to well, I like to call her mrs. energy Liz McDade out as parliamentary advisor down in Cape Town will chat to us about Gwedy Montage's 100 megawatt deadline what's all the fuss about what did the president's announce and why was it so important and why is the minister saying one thing and the president saying another and where does the well, where do the facts lie we'll be talking about that this evening now this show doesn't work without you it doesn't work without you pressing the play button you've done that already Uh, but it really needs your comments and your questions so I open the comment section this evening for our traditional hellos and houses as we do on the show every week but also for you to add commentary and engage with our guests and outer team members as the show rolls on and do remember that I'll put as many questions that you put on the comment section uh, to our guests and contributors this evening we start the show as usual by looking at who's here and who's on board and if you are on board, say how's it. Tell us where you're from. If you've never watched the show before, we'd really like to hear from you and find out uh, what's going on in your neck of the woods. There's cold weather coming to South Africa over the next week or so, so I hope you're going to be wrapped up nice and warm for the weather. Right. Uh, I'm just waiting for the hellos to come through. I see it's taking a little while. and just checking my... Uh, feed to make sure that we're okay and everything's online because it is a little quiet it's not normally this quiet and I'm just checking to see if we are in fact live and everything is working we are all right there we go so send your hellos through now and uh, I will put as many of them up on screen as possible I'm just sharing the link as we speak so you can do that too if you haven't yet and there we go. All right. Let's start with our first topic this evening and go down to Cape Town where the cold weather arrives tomorrow and chat with Caroline Marks from the Militant Rate Bays Association and Andrea Korf, Senior, Le- Senior Legal Project Manager for Outer. Let's say good evening first to our guest, Caroline Marks. Caroline, how are you down in Cape Town? How's the weather? Has it hit yet? You can feel
1: the chilling air.
0: Yeah, and it's only going to get colder. But you, you're dressed uh, appropriately, so I think you're going to survive this cold. Thank you for joining us tonight, Caroline. Look forward to your contribution. And then Andrea Korff. How's it, Andrea? How are you?
2: Hi, good evening, Tom. Good evening, all the alterians. Alteri- alteri- I'm doing great. Thank you, and yourself.
0: I'm well. Okay, we'll get to the hellos after this segment. Let's jump straight in, shall we, and talk about the Milnerton Lagoon and the pollution issues that have plagued the community for some time and find out what action the residents in the Milnerton area have been taking. Let's give you an update now with Caroline Marks. Caroline, um, what action have you been taking in the area lately? What's the latest from your side? You know, Tom,
1: when we got the directive. We were so excited. We thought our problems were solved, that we would just sit back and let things be fixed. And in the beginning of the year, there was a lot of good work that was done. There was a lot of major cleanups done. They pumped, they fixed some sewage pump stations, which were seriously malfunctioning for years. We even had one permanent outlet physically bricked up with bricks. And the water in the lagoon turned clear it smelled fresh, there were fish, there were crabs, the birds were back. And we were really excited. It was full of green weed and it was looking good. You know, nature's a wonderful thing, it recovers. Mm. But then sadly, in March, it started to get worse again. Um, it, the water turned thick, brown, stinky, opaque, you couldn't see six inches into the water, and it smelled dreadful. Mm. So we started what we did. We started complaining. We sent in official complaints. We reported the problem. We escalated it. We sent emails, and it just got worse and worse and worse. So in April, we actually had our first protest with our banner and placards on the West Coast Road next to Milneton Lagoon, and there was a lot of support from people driving past, and that was good. Then most recently, the Milton Aquatic Club organized a protest last week. Now, the, the Aquatic Club normally sails, they um, ski, they uh, windsurf on red flay. And red flay overflows into to the Milton Lagoon. So it's part okay. of the same system. Mm-hmm. Now, that flay has closed for seven weeks due to sewage contamination, and it's a massive flay. It's about nine metres deep in some parts. It covers several square kilometres. So it has to have been a major spill, which has really upset them because they had clinics planned for the kids in the holiday. They had events planned, and everything came to an absolute standstill. So they had this protest last week. They officially registered it. We had, I think, close to 100 people there spread out. And there was a tremendous amount of support from the community because they are becoming much more aware of the problem. Because what happens is people drive past and it looks pretty. So yeah. unless you physically smell it, you don't actually see that much wrong. Um, so what we're also doing to, to raise awareness is we have a Facebook page. It's called hashtag rethink the stink. And we share quite a lot of information on water pollution rate, uh, related issues in, in the Western Cape, in Cape Town in particular. And we're finding that's quite useful to link up with people in the other parts of Cape Town as well. So we link up with Zicoflay, Musenburg, Hart Bay, Pinelands most recently. And again, it's to raise that awareness so that people become more aware of the problem. Um, What we've also been doing is is trying to encourage our residents to report a spill as soon as they see it, to um, keep records of these things. And then, of course, also to contribute to outer financially, because that is actually one of our concerns, is the financial contributions in the Western Cape are actually very limited. And I have a budget for water testing. So we've cut back the budget as much as we can. But what happens is I have I have in the budget one test for Potsdam sewage plants. But when I went there on the last two occasions, they were discharging at three different sites. Wow. And to be effective, I need to test at each of those three sites. But that means it's three times what we budgeted for. So we've really been trying to encourage people to find financially contribute, because I'm very thankful for having those water tests, because without those, I cannot actually prove the problem. It's Mm. like having your hands cut off if you don't have the evidence. So that's a quick update on what we're doing at the moment. The picture hasn't improved much. The lagoon is absolutely dead. It's the, the lagoon floor. There's not one blade of green weed anywhere it's gray brown there's not a crab to be seen there's not a fish to be seen the birds come and have a look and fly away again
0: how sad so
1: at the moment it's so sad and it's so disappointing because it really is a problem that can be fixed
0: why have you decided that you need to to push a little harder now i mean why have you taken these actions beyond the fundraising that you need to, to complete the extra testing you've spoken about What's behind this extra push? I, I'm, I'm guessing you, you, you're not you're not satisfied.
1: Tom, so I think we're getting impatient. It's 18 months since the pre-directive was issued. That's 18 months for the city to take action. And the fact that in July, some of the water test results in the Milton Lagoon were amongst the worst I've seen. Even the city's own results were, were appalling. So what seems to be happening is there tick boxes that are being ticked. For instance, part of the directive will say, clean up this drain. And when I ask, they say, well, we're cleaning it up once a week, but I say it's not clean. So what you're doing, although you're ticking the tick box, it's not being effective. So there are a lot of these reoccurring problems that have not been resolved at all. And that's why the lagoon is in the state that it's in.
0: Well, the Milton Ratepayers Payers Association is working with AUTA on this issue, and we cross to Pretoria now for Andrea Korf's introduction, as well as her contribution. And, and, and Car- uh, Andrea, Caroline mentioned the directive. Just touch on that for us, please. What are the latest developments on the Milton project? And, and, and tell us about this directive that was issued, as well as your letters that dated the 23rd of July. What, what's the latest from AUTA's side?
2: Right. Uh, thank you very much, Tom. Uh, before I delve into that, uh, firstly, I think I just want to take this opportunity to say thank you for, for the individuals, for instance, like Caroline and the, the Mullins and Central Repayers and Residence Associations and other associations that have really come on board. I mean, um, at the end of the day, that is what ATA strives towards, is to, to enable communities to take back. Or to take action when government officials fail to take action so first of all just want to say thank you for them i mean their assistance is invaluable and we wouldn't have been able to get the directive in the first place without our people like caroline uh, just guiding us through the process and um just sharing her expertise with us so mm. number one thank you very much and then number two, tom um the director first of all well, caroline mentioned it at the beginning of the year it was an absolute win for civil society because that was the first time where other departments, um, I mean, province and national started sitting up and seeing that there is a big problem and that they had to intervene. So the directive was issued last year in September and then the city of Cape Town subsequently took it on appeal. So what happened with that is then that um, the Green Scorpions amended the directive just just to heed some of the concerns that the city has made. So in terms of the the directive, there are certain action steps or actions that should be taken by the city. For instance, they have to upgrade Potsdam, they have to um, convert sewer sewer systems, they have to ensure that they take samples at places where they discharge, they have to give feedback to, to affected communities or interested parties, and so on and so forth. So the directive is great, but Caroline just, mentioned that that what we found now currently is that it feels like the city is literally just going through a tick box exercise and unfortunately um the residents and the people in the area are getting frustrated because it looks like nothing has been done Mm. and nothing is improving to the contrary it actually looks like worsening so um in order just to apply that extra bit of pressure, what ATA then decided to do in connection and association with other other the parties in the area, we decided to write a letter to the city. So a letter was, a letter was written to the city on the 23rd of July, um, asking the city to provide us with concrete evidence and proof that they're actually adhering to what is stipulated in the directive itself. Okay. And then also subsequently we wrote, site authorities, for instance, province and national, to ask them, but what are you doing to monitor the city's progress? We need to see action, we need to see change, and we need the city to be transparent about what they are doing, and if something's not working, change it. So that's basically what we have been doing, is applying that pressure on the city to tell us now, are they actually compliant with the directive, and if not, why not? And um, are the oversight authorities actually exercising their oversight?
0: Well, uh, have you received any answers yet, these letters that you've written? And, and if you do not receive sufficient answers, what, what are you going to do about it?
2: Well, we have given um, the city and the oversight authorities until the 18th of August, which is this Friday, to respond comprehensively, because we have been asked, uh, we've asked for concrete evidence, so they have to provide us with that. Now, what we did say and also tell them is if we don't receive an adequate response or no response at all, we would be forced to take further action. For instance, going to court or uh, launching complaints, lodging complaints at either the South African Human Rights Commission, even the SAPS or even the Public Protector, although we don't know how effective that would be (laughs) given the current state of the Public Protector. Mm. But nonetheless, that is a a remedy to us. So, no, um, I think city thinks that we are going away. They are sorely mistaken. I, I think one of the crucial values of AUTA is our tenacity just to keep going and not to give up and not to be intimidated by government when they do give us pushback or when they do do these Stalingrad tactics. So now we're definitely going to take this further if we don't receive adequate responses.
0: uh, I'm looking at some of the comments in the comments section, a lot being uh, said about who controls the city of Cape Town. It is a DA-led city. Uh, Do you get to engage with the party itself, or do you have to follow certain protocols and and processes when when, uh, dealing with this issue?
2: Well, we deal with the city of Cape Town, so we don't deal with political parties at all. So even if a city is run or a municipality is run, by a certain political party. We don't necessarily deal directly with those officials, but those officials are appointed. But one thing that I, I mean, people like to say, yeah, but it's a uh, uh, DA-owned municipality. Uh, Tom, I can tell you that it doesn't matter which political party they're affiliated with, every municipality uses the same playbook. They have the same tactics that you would find in a municipality run by the AEC or the DA, it doesn't matter, they play the same ball game. Mm. And at the end of the day, what makes such a big issue, it's not about who controls the city. This is, if you if you boil down to it, this is about service delivery. It's about a municipality that's neglecting infrastructure. It's about a municipality that's been neglecting what people are saying. It's a municipality that's not giving um, the correct cognizance or to environmental issues for future, for future purposes. I mean, it's a service delivery issue. Whether it's run by the DA or the ANC, uh, I don't know. I think I need to still be convinced that the DA is better than the ANC or the ANC is better than the EF. I, I don't know. In my mind, everybody plays from the same handbook.
0: Got it. Caroline, uh, in the final minutes that we've got for the segment, uh, do you have a message for Cape Town residents and specifically residents in your area that uh, you'd like to put across?
1: I would like to thank them for their support with this issue because I find I'm getting a lot of feedback. I can't be everywhere and the eyes on the ground all the time. So people send me photographs, they report things, they... They share information with me, and that's really helpful. And they put pressure on. They send mails to the premier. We had how one of the things that we did was there was a collapse sewer and sewage running in the streets in an area close to us, so it overflows into the stormwater okay. and, and into the lagoon. So we posted videos of that overflowing every week for six weeks until it finally got the premier's attention, and he called, he called an emergency meeting with the mayor. And because of that process, the emergency procurement was done and that got fixed much quicker. But that's because of the public pressure that was generated by all those mails, by those newspaper articles, by people turning into the radio. So that support is, is is being making such a huge difference. So I just want to thank the people who stepped up and done that.
0: And keep at it, I guess. Keep keep applying the pressure and keep supporting the Militant Rate Payers Association. Right, we move on to an energy discussion in just a moment. But before we do, let's take a look and see who's on board. I believe our notification that the show is on live didn't go out tonight. So we're still waiting for a few people to join. But we've got enough on board to create a show. Hit that share button and that will solve the problem that Facebook has presented us with this evening. Let's see who's here, shall we? Uh, we've got outer on board and outer says good evening active citizens looking for uh, to looking forward to an energy-packed show and we will be discussing energy in just a moment that's Samantha van typing type in that message Samantha van Nispen, the head of marketing at comms at outer is in the room this evening and then Andrea Korf, you've seen her on the screen she's inside the comment section if you'd like to engage with her in the comment section you're more than welcome to you can ask your questions and make your comments down below this video Claire Feldman says, Evening Outer Team Excellence. Hello, Claire. Thank you for joining us. Good to have you on board. Familiar names tonight. Judy van Gilswijk says, Good evening, all. Uh, Anne Law Bramley says, Good evening, Outer. Hello, Anne. Nice to have you with us. Fernando Lopez says, Hi from Algarve. Don't make me jealous, Fernando. However, Fernando will be back in two months. Uh, Scott McDonald says, Greetings from London. Chelmsford in the UK. Hello, London from Johannesburg. Nice to see you on board. Ian Mountford says good evening, Tom and Arthur. Thank you, Anne. Nice to see you with us. Jeff P. Scott says good evening, Arthur team. On the somewhat chilly evening, there's more to come. I expect to get heated during the evening, and yes, you may. Uh, who else have we got? Michael John Billsbury from Cabera with Sue Drewbody from Ravonia hello to the two of you and thank you for joining us kirk gemmel says maintenance is not an agenda in africa just look around why alex also says sorry i was a bit late i'm here outer thank you alex nice of you to join us this evening Johan Elof says take over your own municipal management surely by now we are aware that the ANC can't oh, i'm not going to read the rest of that because i'll get into trouble with mark zuckerberg tony clark uh, is on board claire feldman i've already said hello to ian paulson we say hello to this evening good evening tom and the outer team And we'll do one or two more. Diane LaRue says, good evening, everyone. Late again, I must really reset my notification. And Peter Welsh says, thank you for all you do, Caroline Marks and Outer, the organization Undoing Tax Abuse. There are more messages. We'll try and get through them, the hellos, as we go through the show. But remember, you can interact with our guests tonight and our team members in the comment section down below. Now, let's move on to the car powership deal. If you are new to the show and unfamiliar with car power ships, I'm going to put it as simply as I can and uh, ask uh, Chris Yelland to expand on it. Car power ships are these massive ships with power stations on board that are normally used for war-torn areas or disaster-struck countries. They pull into the harbors and they plug into the electricity system and they produce electricity. There have been questions raised about a number of issues around the contracts or the proposed contracts. One is the price and the other is the Period of the contract i think if i remember correctly it was a 30-year deal that was proposed which seems exceptionally long for emergency power uh, and to discuss this and the non-negotiable deadline because there was a deadline for financial closure uh, and the three car projects uh, this deadline was for the 31st of july 2021 it's, it's passed so what's happened to update us on this Outer's energy consultant chris yelland joins us hi chris what can you tell us Hi
3: there, Tom. Uh, nice to be here and uh, good evening to all the listeners and the watchers. Um, yeah, just to correct one small thing that you mentioned, uh, these uh, power ships are planned to be contracted for 20 years, not 30 okay. years. Still an extremely long time uh, and nothing like the um, uh, shorter periods that would be typical for an emergency situation. These, co- these power ships do have a place in the mix. Um, And they are typically used in war zones, uh, in areas where there may have been an earthquake or a natural disaster. And it's used to really provide emergency power to a coastal city, uh, but not to power the national grid like South Africa. Uh, They are just too expensive, they are dirty, they they cause pollution, uh, air pollution, uh, water pollution, uh, noise pollution. And, um, and, and really they, they are supposed to be temporary, certainly not a 20-year uh, solution at all. Uh, so the question now is where are we now with these power ships? Yeah. And, uh, and, and you, you mentioned that a uh, deadline of the 31st of March. And just to contextualize that, when the minister announced the successful bidders of this uh, so-called emergency risk mitigation IPP program. Uh, two-thirds of the bidders, of or, or the power, of the winning bidders, uh, was to come from, from powership in three different projects, about 1,200 megawatts out of the total of 2,000 megawatts. And, um, and, and so it forms a massive part of this emergency procurement. And the minister announced a deadline of the 31st of of July in order for these projects to reach financial closure. Now, what financial closure means is that's the time when the banks say, "Yeah, all okay, we will now extend the money to develop these projects. Uh, So it's really to do with the financing of these projects. And before the banks will extend the finance, all your ducks have to be in a row, as it were. You have to have environmental authorization. You have to have port authorities. Uh, you have to have pipeline authorities if there are uh, a transporting of gas involved. Uh, you have to have a power purchase agreement with Eskom, or at least an agreement by Eskom that will it will enter into a power purchase agreement with these IPPs. So all these ducks have to be in a row. There, need, there must be no outstanding legal challenges uh, that could upset the apple cart uh, after the money has been extended. <laughs> uh, the banks want to know that when they give the money, everything is in order and the sure. projects can proceed. Mm. So uh, that deadline for financial closure is quite important, uh, but it was not uh, The 31st of, uh, of, of July came and went, and uh, financial closure has not been achieved. And so the minister promptly extended the non-negotiable deadline by another two months so currently the non-negotiable deadline is now uh, the 30th of september 2021 and uh, and to be honest it's likely to be extended again
0: chris what's holding the uh, car powership uh, projects up what what's holding it back yeah
3: this is it's an interesting one but uh, first of all there have been a lot of issues around environment environmental authorization and uh, our colleague Liz, the head of energy at uh, at AUTA has been the leading light uh, wearing another cap uh, as an environmentalist uh, with an environmental NGO uh, who have lodged um, complaints uh, that um, uh, the process was not followed, uh, that the matter had not been properly considered by the environmental impact um, uh, consultants and that the environmental impact uh, studies that were done were deeply flawed, and uh, they put in an objection to these three projects. And I I must take my hat off to Liz. She's an environmental warrior. She has uh, blocked these projects, at least for the time being, in the sense that the uh, Department of Forestry, Fisheries, and Environment agreed that uh, these uh, applications by Karpowership for environmental author- or authorization were flawed and set aside and denied. Um, and uh, so uh, the situation as it stands at the moment is that Karpowership uh, is conducting an internal appeal against the uh, decision of the Department of Forestry, Fisheries and Environment which has still got to be heard. Uh, we don't, don't know exactly when it's going to be uh, Uh, But my reading of the situation, and Liz, please correct me if I'm wrong, but um, my reading is if if, car powerships appeal is successful, I think the environmental uh, organizations are going to take this matter on review in the courts. On the other hand, if uh, the the environmentalists are successful and and, and this uh, denial is upheld, by the uh, by, by the, uh, the DFFE in the, in the internal appeal. I believe COP powership will take the matter on appeal in the courts. Uh, but one way or another, this is far from over. And we, I think we're going to see this play out in the courts. It could mm. take months, if not a year or two. Uh, but in the meantime, financial closure of these projects will not take place because it can only happen Financial closure will only happen when the banks are satisfied that there are no uh, litigation outstanding that could upset the apple cart. Um, So I I think uh, for the time being, um, you know, these projects may not happen.
0: Let's talk about uh, public hearings. Chris, how, you know, how does Nersa proceed with public hearings for license applications while one the environmental authorization has been declined? And two, there are no port authorities in place. And three, the Eskom board has not agreed to power purchase agreements. And and four, while there is a legal challenge taking place, how do you how do you hold public hearings? It's mind-boggling.
3: You, you know, I just don't know. And I- Utter uh, 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 is going to be uh, submitting, uh, uh, you know, uh, comments and arguments at the public hearings, which are going to be taking place next week on Thursday, opposing the application uh, uh, by ship for licences. But uh, to, to to try and understand how can this be happening, I, I think perhaps one must uh, look at the deadline, the so-called non-negotiable deadline mm. set by. Mr. Montage, was the end of July. <laughs> so they expected financial closure to have been achieved by the end of July. And in such a case, you know, holding public hearings on the 19th of August would probably have been about right, you know. Now's the time to, to hold, because you, you do have to get a license for these projects. So, but the thing that has really put the cat amongst the pigeons is financial closure has not been achieved. None of the ducks are in a row, Uh, yet the public hearings, uh, you know, for for PowerShip's license applications, together with the other bidders as well, uh, is going ahead um, uh, on the 19th of of August. We're going to be opposing it. We think it's irrational and completely out of line uh, to hold, um, to even consider applications by PowerShip when the applications are clearly incomplete. Nurses' own processes require that you have have to have all your, doc, your documents in place when you submit an application and if you submit an incomplete application with missing documents you don't have environmental authorization you don't have power purchase agreements or you don't have pipeline agreements you don't have port agreements they should just reject the applications and send them back to the applicant and say incomplete application Try again when you've got your papers in line. Sure. So we're going to oppose it on many, many of these grounds, uh, and we'll see how it plays out.
0: Well, let's talk about Parliament for a moment and their role in this and their oversight responsibilities. And uh, there's talk of a parliamentary inquiry into the cop powership projects. What's, what's this about?
3: You know, um, I think there was uh, a, you know, a request uh, that, that, that uh, the Parliamentary Oversight Committee should... Uh, investigate this matter of power and all that the parliament did was they called the department in to explain a few things uh, they didn't hear both sides of the story and they, they really didn't want to hear this matter at all uh, so after hearing what the, the department had to say they said oh well that's fine all good uh, but now there's a lot of other things arising like these environmental uh, authorizations uh, like the uh, court case that has been uh, instituted by a company called DNG energy who was alleging corruption uh, and uh, and conflict of interest uh, and uh, procedural irregularities uh, in the whole tender process uh, and this was supposed to have gone to court already you know in July but has been postponed as usual uh, and is now only going to be heard in the middle of September uh, so uh, now The Parliament's legal advisers were consulted by by Parliament to say, do they have the right to hold an investigation into this matter? Um, And the the Parliament's legal team have come back and said, yes, you have every right. The, The Oversight Committee has every right to hold an inquiry. And in fact, now Parliament uh, looks like they're going to be holding uh, now a much more serious inquiry than the charade that they held, uh, you know, a little while back, which was no inquiry at all, really. Uh, So that's yet another reason why I think the license uh, cannot be issued uh, by NOSA. They shouldn't be holding public uh, hearings to issue a license whilst parliament is conducting an investigation into mm. corruption and uh you know and, and and all the irregularities that have been alleged uh you know in this in this whole process so it's yet another reason why i think uh, the licenses should not be granted yet uh, and why why the application by power, car powership should be uh rejected and sent back uh, and told them to come back when the when things are a little bit.
0: All this talk of postponements makes me think uh, we live in the land of postponements some days. Let's see what our viewers have to say about this. Uh, Trevor Patrick says, great to have Chris inform us of the facts. Bertus DeVette says, we have a massive desert area in the Kalahari. Why not just put up a solar plant? And the question that leads off that is if this is going to take a year or two to get through courts, and if this process, this car-powership deal takes years to finalize, is there anything we could do that would be faster and more efficient? Or is this it? Is, is car-powership it? Do we need them? Or is there something else we could do?
3: Yeah, I think that's a very key question. And uh, the the answer is that I do agree that, you know, there is this gap. There is this risk mitigation IPP program. There is the renewable energy IPP program. These are public procurements uh, handled by the Department of uh, Mineral Resource and Energy. And they are all behind schedule. And they are all too slow. And there is this gap uh, that we need to fill now and certainly in the next two years. And it cannot be filled by this emergency risk mitigation IPP program, nor can it be filled by the uh, utility-scale renewable energy IPP program. Those projects take two to three years to come to fruition. Uh, uh, And and, and we haven't even ordered these plants under the renewable energy IPP Mm. program yet. Uh, So uh, those things are, are two to three years away at the earliest. The question we got to think now is what is plan B? Because plan A has a gap. And the only way that you can fill this gap is uh, through self-generation, embedded generation, and distributed generation of renewable energy by customers of electricity who uh, and, and by independent power producers who can wheel power uh, through the grid uh, from generators, embedded generators, to off that is, customers of electricity and self generation by customers themselves. In other words, the only solution is for customers to take ownership of their own energy futures and to start looking at self generation, better generation, and wheeling power from uh, generators to, to off takers. Uh, and, and that's where this 100 megawatts yeah. limit uh, yeah. uh, uh, it comes in. And I know Liz is going to be speaking further about that.
0: All right let's go back to the comments shall we and we will talk about that 100 megawatt limit and the deadline in just a moment with Liz MacDade and perhaps at the end of this discussion we could have a brief minute or two with both of you with regards to the Madupi explosion that we've all seen in the headlines recently I know a lot of people in the comment section would like to hear some comments on that Claire Feldman says the sad thing is that if Eskom was functioning correctly and optimally there would be no need to spend billions on outsourcing for power ships over a 20-year period yet another display of inefficiency and ineptitude. Uh, Johan Durdle says Love the show Facts, facts, facts Thank you Johan We'll continue to bring you the facts Kirk Emmel mentions that Madupi blew up in one week After the commission Go figure he says We'll talk about that And uh, why that uh, possibly happened Or what our uh, experts have to say Mark Jackson uh, agrees with Bertus. Mark says Uppington gets some of the most Sunny days in the world 355 days a year or something And the skies are clear Unlike in the Middle East It's a perfect place For solar and CSP." Christina says there's no incentive for Eskom to perform because they hold a monopoly and NERSA continues to award tariff hikes above inflation, essentially rewarding Eskim's poor performance and punishing you, the consumer. Jackie Jennifer says ships and Madupi blowing up. What really is happening? And then Claire says I believe that public scrutiny and questioning is the only way to halt this vanity project. We'll take one or two more before we uh, move on to our next topic. But we'll go with Alex Hel- Elshoff's con- um, comment. Powerships are a temporary stopgap solution. It makes no sense for a 20-year contract. We've discussed this before and agree with you. It does not make sense to sign a contract for two decades. Uh, Johan Ilhoff says parliamentary oversight in a state of disaster where parliament has no power. A whole lot of comments in the comment section tonight and keep them coming in. We'll put as many as we can. To our contributors. Well, Chris mentioned Liz MacDade out as parliamentary advisor. We like to think of her as Mrs. Energy. And we want to talk about this self generated power and Minister Guerimantasha, But you remember uh, just a couple of months back, it was a 10 megawatt deadline. It was increased to 100 megawatts. There seemed to be some fuss. So I want to ask Liz, first of all, what's all this fuss about? Why did the president announce and why was it important? Why did the president get involved in this, Liz? So,
4: uh, you know. I I just want to go back to what Chris was saying about sure. the plan B. And, and um, if you remember, I suddenly remembered, I think it's, uh, was it a year ago or was it not even a year ago? COVID makes time go into tunnel vision. But but there was a moment when uh, Gwedi Montash and Praveen Goran were squaring off about energy supply, the lights were going out, and the president had to fly back from wherever he was to solve the problem. Well, I don't quite know, to to, to knock people's heads together or uh, shout. And I think if we look at this pattern, what we've seen is renewable energy, which is, as I think everyone is saying, is the most affordable, the quickest to get up and running, and we have all the resources, is consistently delayed. So, we we i mean there are experts who say that we wouldn't even have this load shedding if the renewable energy contracts had been signed the the years before when they were supposed to but they got delayed now we're ending up with a gap now suddenly we have this weird idea of mooring foreign ships to fix this gap that suddenly extends to 20 years so i think quite frankly the president's probably getting a bit frustrated um, the Minister himself announced in February 2020 that, that he would gazette the idea that self-generation wouldn't need a license. I it's cutting the red tape, so that you could generate up to a megawatt, and that then you could you, could, um, you know schools, you think schools, businesses, companies can now generate a little bit of power. But we're still in a hole. We need the Plan B. And Minister Muntashi took until April 2021 to gazette what he had promised in February 2020. So I, I would imagine that if you're the President of this country and you're trying to tell the outside world that South Africa is a good place to come and, we, and invest, you're trying to say to people the economy can get back on its feet and what you're not getting is cooperation, it seems. So the president's uh, advice, um, which presumably must not be the same advice as, as the Department of Mineral Energy, um, thought that the, one of the ways of a plan B is to raise this cap on self-generation, which means that those who can, like businesses, can actually relieve the pressure on the grid, take some power off, and in that way, we don't have to run those expensive diesel plants, mm. and we give ESCOM time to do the maintenance. doesn't help if Madupi blows up, but, but uh, theoretically, there's some gap, there's some space. And so um, the president made an announcement and said that in 60 days that Schedule would be amended, um, and I don't know if you remember, there was a few jokes going around with the, some arm twisting that had happened with the Minister of Mineral Energy. So now we, the deadline, was the tenth of August, and outer basically was asking the question how how, how much on the show if i if i remember we were asking how long does it take to take that tin and put a little naught on the edge of it mm. um how complicated can it be and although we don't want to downplay that this is a slightly more technical than that there were uh, stakeholders who'd already been working on this and so the Department simply had to take what some of those stakeholders were saying and look at it, check that it was all in line, and then publish it for comment, which is what they did the last time. But instead, we had silence, dragging our feet. Nothing's happening. Right up until rumors began to surface the end of last week. And I had a look. Nursa is having a meeting on Friday the 13th. I'm lucky for some, Who's, who knows? <laughs>
0: yes, what an interesting and, date, yes.
4: <laughs> and this is on their agenda. But that ha- that's nurse's agenda. So has the DMRE given it to nurse? Does nurse have to do anything? Is the DMRE going to gazette it for public comment? Are we going to wake up and find that what's been gazetted is not going to take us forward? Or well, are we going to have more delays?
0: Well, let's talk about this gazetting uh, gazette schedule. What What are the implications of the gazetting schedule?
4: So, so if it's gazetted, that means it, it's it's it means all systems go. The firing gun goes. That means that all of those people that have been thinking this was a great idea sixty days ago, they thought, "Wow, this is excellent." Mm-hmm. Maybe some months ago, they thought, "Let's get us this." Let's get our ducks in a row, let's get our paperwork in place, and let's start ordering power stations so that when it's gazetted, they can register their, their, their project. You don't have to go through the whole licensing red tape, but they do have sure. to register. And then, wow, well, we don't have load shedding.
0: Uh, and, and what does this mean for uh, this, the energy transition as we move to cleaner energy? Uh, What are the implications for this? I mean, we talk about a transition, but we've not really seen one.
4: Yeah, but it also takes it further than that, because what it starts to open up is a transition from a centralized monopoly into a distributed energy sector, where, you know, like shopping centers, hospitals, uh, businesses, all can put... A lot of power, they can make their own power stations and then they can start wheeling it through the grid, passing municipalities can set up their their power stations. And all of this starts to transition us um, from this, this centralized, expensive electricity down to an affordable, locally mm. controlled. I mean, you know, neighborhoods can set up power stations. They can... They can
0: um, what does the, a what does a what does, society. what does a 100 megawatt power station look like?
4: Gee, actually, I'm, I'm not sure Chris is the one who no, can tell us. Speak. Let's ask um, we, yeah, Chris,
3: what, I I'll think
0: that. what does it look like? If, yeah. if we have a hospital and we want to put, generate power, what kind of power station is that?
3: Look, the thing about a hundred megawatts is it's not small. A uh, hundred megawatts is not something you can fit on a rooftop. It's not even something that you can probably put on your premises in Johannesburg. It's something that's going to be, have to be mounted in the countryside. And the power that is generated from that power plant, whether it's a wind plant or a solar PV plant or a battery storage plant, would then be wheeled through the existing grid infrastructure to the customer. So you have an independent power producer, you have an off-taker. And the grid is just used as a transport mechanism to transport that electricity from the point of generation to the point of consumption. What I'm really just trying to say is that 100 megawatts is not something you can put on your rooftop or on your premises. It will have to be mounted generally separate from your premises. Uh, but there are smaller plants that you can put on your rooftop. Okay. Uh, like, uh, you know, an 800 kilowatt plant could be, could be done. Over to you, Liz.
4: Yeah no but I think this is the the exciting thing is it starts the re- the revolution of where people can generate and as Chris is saying wheel it through so so I can sit in Cape Town and I can buy my electricity from, from your rooftop Tom
0: because wow. you've
4: got now little power station I actually do have on my rooftop pay. yes
0: <laughs>
4: <laughs> and and that way we we enable a, we we can all support each other because yeah. it's not likely that everybody's power stations are going to collapse at the same time. But but again, uh, this is not uh, part of tonight's show. But it's important to know that we are looking towards Eskom dividing itself into different entities, and one of those entities is to have all the wires under one uh, institution, mm. and for that we need somebody. and guess who's in charge of putting forward that legislation. And guess whether it will be on time.
0: Uh, Well, I'm all out of guesses tonight. I'll just go with the minister. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) The the, the question that I'm burning to ask, and I'm sure it's in the comment section, Chris, is if we're going to be putting these plants outside of uh, major metropolitan areas and the space for PV plants and stuff, uh, and then bringing it in via ESKIM's transmission system, and Liz has already alluded to this story that we need to split ESKIM into various divisions and have them operate efficiently. Uh, what are the chances that the electricity will actually get through from the plants out in the millifield in Paris somewhere to, to a shopping center or hospital in Johannesburg or a suburb? Is that system yeah, well, reliable? Let me say that there are three parts to ESKIM, uh, generation,
3: transmission, and distribution. Uh, two of those uh, businesses are, are, are what I call dogs. Um, Generation is a lousy business because they're old power plants, coal fired, performing poorly, etc. Uh, and they also use an enormous amount of capital. The other dog business is distribution because a lot of the municipalities are in very poor shape and municipalities form something like uh, 50% of Eskom sales. Uh, and, and, and so it's very hard to collect the money from these people, mm. from the municipalities, mm. the ones that are in financial trouble. But the good part of Eskom business, the one that doesn't use too much capital, the one that is technically performing pretty well is transmission, the grid. And in my, my opinion, the future Eskom is to be the grid company. And the, the future generation sector will be a diversified generation sector uh, comprising, uh, you know, large generators, former ESCIM generators, public-private partnerships uh, generators, municipal generators, and hundreds and hundreds of IPPs and literally thousands of small-scale uh, embedded generators. So that, that's a, a world that is going to change radically. The distribution sector God alone knows what we're going to do with that because it is it is pretty much uh, a mess at the moment. It has to be looked at, but Escom, I think, should become the grid company. It is a natural monopoly. It is at the moment state-owned, and I'm sure it will stay that way. Uh, and that Escom's role would be should be to facilitate transactions between the generation sector, hundreds and you know maybe thousands of different generators, and the customers, uh, so that uh, the grid actually is what it should be—a transport mechanism independent of the generators. At the moment, yeah. generation is mixed with transmission, and it's it, there's lots of conflicts of interest. The transmission company needs to be independent to allow equal access to the grid.
4: And also, you can have a system, which they have in other countries, where you, as a householder or small business, you choose your supplier. Indeed. And you don't... So you don't buy from the grid. You buy from... The solar plant or the wind plant, wherever you want your energy, you buy it from them. It's such an interesting it just discussion. This. Via the wire.
0: It's a fascinating discussion because when we sit down and we talk in ten minutes, I can see the path. I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. I can see how, if you glue this thing together properly and everything is working efficiently and properly, we can solve our energy problems uh, in a much shorter space of time than, than we imagine at the moment. And everything is in place to do it, and, and the, the willingness is there from private enterprise to get involved in this process. So, I mean, I just think that uh, as citizens and as civil a- activist groups, we should be uh, pushing for the recommendations that you've, you've made this evening. Now, I'd like to get to a couple of comments in the comment section but uh, there were a lot of comments this evening about the madupi power station uh, being signed off just a week or so ago and then a few days back we heard there was uh, uh, one huge explosion that was heard from up to 60 kilometers away and saw some devastating pictures of i don't know blown up pipes and tanks and things i'm not an expert who can tell us what happened there chris or liz whoever whoever talks first
4: uh, Chris chris can tell us what blew up uh, and, <laughs> and 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 I, I what i'll tell you is the completed madupi was not quite complete because the anti pollution measures were not in place
0: okay um, all right chris what caused the bang okay just to give you a quick rundown
3: uh, you know on the technicalities and trying to put it in uh, you know in a clear way uh, we're going to do some work on unit number four. This unit actually is not brand new. Well, it's been, let's say it's been operating for about a year in commercial service. Uh, and they needed to shut it down to do some work on it. So they, they did shut it down, and then they wanted to open up the generator. Now, before you can open up a generator, there's some things that you've got to sort out because inside the generator is hydrogen gas, which is used as a coolant. Uh, Now, hydrogen gas on its own is not combustible, but mixed with air, it forms an explosive mix. So before you open up the generator and expose all this hydrogen to the air, uh, you, you first have to, what they call, purge the hydrogen out of the generator. And you do this by pumping in an inert gas, carbon dioxide, into the generator to displace the hydrogen, Okay. Once that is done, you then uh, purge the carbon dioxide by pumping in air into the generator, which then displaces the carbon dioxide. The whole purpose of this is to avoid air and hydrogen mixing together. Sure. Because if it happens and it ignites, you've got it like a bomb. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. They started pumping in the air before the hydrogen was purged. I had this explosive mix of hydrogen and oxygen inside the generator which ignited like a bomb and the the generator itself a an 800 megawatt generator is has been destroyed it cannot be repaired it has to be replaced it's going to take at least a year if they're going to take another unit another generator from kusili kusili unit six transport it to Madupi. Put it in, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, get it working, and then in the meantime, order another unit for uh, for number six at at, at Kusili. It's going to take at least a year to sort out Madupi, and longer to sort out Kusili. But unit six is not ready at Kusili, so they've got a bit of time there. So that's where we are at the moment. Uh, they're busy assessing the damage. That's the, the the problem was that there was mixture of hydrogen and air. In the generator, which ignited and blew the thing to smithereens.
0: And, and then, Chris, what, you know, you're talking about buying another generator. What's the what's the cost associated with purchasing a, another generator and bringing it into the country?
3: Look, I, I don't know exactly how much it costs, but it's measured in billions. Okay, uh, it, it, this is not something that's sitting on the shelf. This is not something that is made on a production line. This is not a 600 megawatt generator with China produ- produces one a week. These are bespoke custom design generators designed specifically for escom for this application and it's made in france and it takes a long time because they're not made on a production line so that is the problem when engineers get, get out of hand and they want to be the biggest and the best in the world and instead of taking standard products which may not be the state of the art may not be quite as efficient but it's big engineers like big things you know, to be the best, it's like hubris, and uh, uh, so sometimes you've got to calm engineers down and tell them, no, 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 let's oh not goodness. be the biggest and the best. Let's just do this economically
0: and quickly. Yeah, as you but as you I have a question. Uh, yes, go ahead, Liz.
4: I I wanted to to because what struck me was, okay, uh, slight human error here, um, but why did it need? fixing or why was there work needed when it would only been going for a year? Because it seemed like a fairly major sort of uh, investigation that was on, that was happening or that was needed. Um, so that to me raised question marks. And then the other issue is, isn't this time for the plan C where you basically go, okay, well, really on what basis when we've blown up one generator, do we want to go and put bad money Good money after bad why don 't we yeah. rather use that no, yeah, I just switch keep I just keep thinking alternative. We're one step yeah.
0: forward, two steps back in in this situation, yeah. and as Chris spoke about uh, the unit coming from France and being a bespoke unit, and in the same sentence mention, mentioned these six hundred megawatt units that China produce one a week I mean, the, bus- the small business brain in me says, well why don 't we just buy uh, generators from china and Pop them up all over South Africa. Surely that could be uh, uh, viable. But then what do I know? I'm just uh, an average Joe Schmo. But, I, you know, we buy our clothes from China. We buy our cars from China. We buy everything from China. Why aren't we buying our generators from China? Anyway, uh, we are bumping up uh, the, uh, towards the end of the show. In fact, we've got a minute or so to go. I'm just looking at some of the comments that we've got on screen. You honey, love says, start up the gas turbines again. They're all mothballed now. Christina Gubich says, uh, we need to talk about NERSA acting objectively when awarding tariff hikes, and what is their mandate supposed to be? Claire Feldman's talking about the inverter system, which she now uses, and more and more houses in South Africa are relying on solar power to keep their appliances and lives going. Uh, Johanny Eloff says, agreed, but highly distributed renewables will relieve a lot of strain from the grid and eventually add up. Ivan Nell says, maybe Eskom doesn't perform because family members of key players stand to gain much through the need for IPPs. Uh, I'm going to take one or two more comments. Um, Tony Clark wants to know in which po- ports are the power, car power ships meant to be moored in? Uh, Chris could, or, or Liz, which ports would those be?
4: Saldana, Kucha, and Richards Bay
0: all right got it and christina says small scale embedded generation still relies on Eskom transmission and Eskom government governance and we touched on that and then i think i'm just looking for one more that we can close the show with tonight and i think we will just go with claire once again the taxpayer foots the bills For Eskom's inefficiency, the depth of inequality and poverty grows. Ain't that the truth? Right, let's say goodbye to our contributors this evening and ALTA team members. First up, uh, Andrea Korf, Senior Legal Project Manager at ALTA. Thank you for joining us this evening, Andrea. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you, Alterians. Have
2: a wonderful week and stay safe.
0: And then uh, needing to wrap up warmly in Cape Town for the next couple of days, Caroline Marks, the responsible member for environmental affairs at the Milton Rate Payers Association. Thank you, Caroline. Stay warm.
1: Thank you, Tom, for the invitation. And I have to tell you, when you go into the meeting with the whole outer team behind you, it is a complete pleasure. You get a different level of respect. So I just have to say once again, thank you. It's really much appreciated.
0: Good, good, and may you continue pushing until the Molten Lagoon is pollution-free, and those uh, those underwater plants are green and not grey, as you describe them—the seaweed, etc., etc., and the kelp. Okay, and then we've just had them on the screen. uh, Our two energy experts, Chris Yellen. Thanks for joining us, Chris.
3: Thanks, Tom, and good night to everybody. And may the energy be
0: with you. (laughs) <laughs> I like that. You're going to have to beat him now, uh, Liz. Uh, your part in shot, please.
4: Yeah, no, I can't beat that. It's just, you know, we, we all need that good, strong energy to keep us renewed and focused on the work ahead. So that's my parting shot, and stay warm and stay safe.
0: I would like to thank our guests and our team members on board tonight for a show full of facts and information. If you didn't know about car power ship deals, if you didn't know about self-generated energy and the problem in the Milnerton Lagoon of the last 60 minutes or so, we hope that we have given you the facts. (laughs) Well, it's goodbye from me for the next seven days. Back with you again next Wednesday at 7 p.m. Remember, the show goes out live at 7 p.m. on Wednesdays, but you can watch at your leisure at any time, and you can go back and watch other Outer Hour shows. They're all on the Outer page. Hit the videos tab and go look. And if you haven't been to the Outer website, it's worth visiting outer.co.za. Go meet the team and find out what Outer is up to. Find out which projects they're involved in and the status reports so that you as a South African citizen can empower yourself with information. And if you haven't pressed the join now button hit that join now button and join alto well I'm last week I blessed you so I'm gonna wish and bless you again I bless you I wish you money because that's what a lot of us need at the moment everyone I speak to say hey Tom there's no money around okay we wish it there we go in the next seven days I wish you money I wish you good health I wish you lots of love and joy most of all I wish that you join us again next Wednesday 7 p.m. it's a date don't be late I miss you already. Our fight to eradicate corruption, maladministration, unethical leaders, and the abuse of taxpayers' money by those in power continues. It's fresh, it's fearless, and focused. The Outer Hour, where your voice matters.